continuing our aim to understand the present through the past. The same time as the Soviet Union was finally withdrawing from Afghanistan. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history. So he's going from a think tank into a government, into the, into the Bush administration. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge. So liberal democracy, kind of American freedom, had triumphed. There is no longer a clear division between what is foreign and what is domestic. We do have an overarching topic for this series of Barely Getting By, and that is the 1990s. Hello, and welcome to Series 2 of Barely Getting By. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So, Em, how are you going in lockdown? Look... Let's be honest, this is the third time I've asked you this because this is the third time we've recorded this episode. Em and I have been absolutely bedeviled by problems today. Um, We had some not particularly welcome interruptions from baby Viv the first time we tried to record. The second time, my my system decided, for want of a better word, to cark it. So here we go, fingers crossed. Um, Yeah, how's, how's lockdown treating you? Look, pretty well, to be honest. Interruptions from from babies aside, we're we're all going a bit spare in our little apartment, like I'm sure everybody is. But but overall, feeling pretty lucky that you know we have work that we can do from home, and that you know we're safe and our families are safe. So pretty good. What about you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just keeping time with my dog, going for lots of long walks, um, listening to lots of podcasts, which. which did make us think about how we're going to run this series of Barely Getting By. I know that last time around we had some pretty long, lengthy episodes going into all sorts of miserable issues. Um, This time around, we are going to be splitting each episode into three parts for the benefit of anyone whose attention span is as frayed as mine. Um, And each of those three parts to each episode is going to have a very narrow theme. But we do have an overarching topic for this series of Barely Getting By, and that is the 1990s. So, um, why why do the 90s matter? Well, I guess we're, we're continuing our aim to understand the present through the past. And in the first season, that was, we kind of took that fairly generally. But the reason I think that we're looking at the 1990s today is because you and I have been kind of talking about this for a while. But basically, we've been exploring this idea that the politics of the 1990s, the culture and the economics, the way that the world was constructed after the end of the Cold War kind of helps explain how we are in this kind of triple economic political environmental crisis today. Yes, and not to say health crisis, um, but this series is emphatically not a coronavirus podcast. I think we're both pretty sick of self-appointed experts pontificating on COVID-19 and what a public health response looks like, what an economic response looks like. So while obviously it's sort of an unavoidable topic, we're going to do our best to, I guess, not talk too directly about coronavirus and they really talk about it when it counts. So we're going to start this episode not by talking about the 1990s, but by talking about the year 1989, because that really does set in, set out kind of the main, you know, I guess political um, and economic contours for the decade. But 
1989 is an interesting time to start because that was also the year that a very famous American political scientist named Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history. So we're going to get into that in a minute, but 1989 was a really interesting year. Um, what was happening then, Emma? So 1989 is a huge year, and that's kind of why we're taking that as our kicking off point, I think, for our discussion of the the 1990s. So at the beginning of 1989, we have a new president in the United States, Ronald Reagan, that most beloved of of Republican presidents, has left office, and he's been succeeded by George H.W. Bush, so Bush Sr. So the United States is, is going through some changes, but I think probably more significantly in Europe, um, the Soviet Union is deeply embroiled in a war in Afghanistan, um, which is kind of characterised, I guess, as the Soviet Union's Vietnam War, which they have lost and lost badly. So they're withdrawing from Afghanistan and they're looking kind of, uh, I guess, weak and vulnerable, especially as revolutions are starting to happen across Eastern Europe. Yes. So In February 1989, at the same time as the Soviet Union was finally withdrawing from Afghanistan, Francis Fukuyama gave a speech in Chicago on this theme of the end of history. And that kind of kick-started his rise to prominence. But to go back a little bit, Francis Fukuyama, he sort of, he came to this speech in Chicago having trod a very well-trodden path through American sort of state and policy circles, right, Em? You can probably tell me a little bit more about that, having studied the US extensively, having studied in the US. You're absolutely right. So Francis Fukuyama is is walking this well-trodden path kind of through the swamp, as, as Donald Trump would characterise it. So at the time that he gives this crucial speech, he is making his way between the Rand Corporation, which is a kind of policy think tank which focuses on defence, into the policy area of the State Department, so the, basically the Department of Foreign Affairs in the United States. So he's going from a think tank into the government, into the into the Bush administration. And then after that, he kind of makes his way between all of those things and, of course, the Ivy League colleges. So he's, he's pretty typical in that sense, but he's not typical in the way that this idea, this speech that he gives in Chicago kind of explodes into the mainstream in the way that a kind of academic idea doesn't usually do. I know, we'd all love to be as famous as Francis Fukuyama. Um, but it's not necessarily because of the merit of the idea that he had about the end of history, which will the substance of which we'll get to in a second. It's more about the fact that it arrived at a very timely moment. So like I said, in February, he gave this speech, and this was the same time as the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. By the time it was published as an article in a small neoconservative publication called The, called the National Interest in June, um, Poland had just hosted its first free elections since since communism in the late 1940s. Uh, this was also the time at which the Tiananmen Square protests in China had erupted, but then been very strongly clamped down on. So it was a really interesting political time to be writing about the end of the Cold War and what Fukuyama called the end of history. So M. Um, what did the end of history mean? I mean, obviously, history history didn't stop in 1989. We're still here. We are still here. History is, is still happening. Um, we're, we're kind of living through it at the moment, I think. But basically, to Fukuyama, what it, what it looked like, what he was arguing in 1989, was that this grand ideological conflict that was the Cold War, the conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States was over, and the United States had won. They had triumphed, and that meant that the, the United States had won that all-important 
contest of ideas, what George, I think George Bush called the kind of fight for the soul of mankind. So liberal democracy, kind of American freedom had triumphed. But what that meant is it that kind of in the absence of that great ideological conflict, nothing will kind of happen. History is over because the thing that motivates great conflict is ideology. It's the contest of ideas. And because that contest is over, it's finished. We're just kind of, you know, marching forward to the point where the whole world is kind of governed by a liberal democracy, which... Fukuyama, like as much as that is is really kind of triumphalist at saying the the United States has won, he also found it kind of sad. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's absolutely right. He um sort of foresaw the nineteen nineties or you know history thereafter as a time in which we would find techni- technocratic solutions to all the world's problems, particularly problems in in say uh, the ecological realm. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in, and I'm not, I won't bore people too much with this, um, is kind of the theoretical grounding for what Fukuyama wrote, and this is me being very much the historian here, but as part of his you know, liberal democratic triumphalism, he also sort of kind of kicked Marxists in the teeth. So, you know, the, the left is in a very steep decline with the, 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 just the you know, increasing dissatisfaction with Soviet communism, um, left-wing parties all over the world are also in a state of decline. We have, you know, the electoral triumphs of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. And what Fukuyama did was he kind of turned Marxist logic on itself. So anyone who has a, you know, acquaint- an acquaintance with Marxism, and I'm going to grossly simplify here, understands that to a Marxist, economics leads politics. So, you know, your political institutions and the leading ideas of your day are based on the economic organisation of society. Fukuyama turned that on its head to say that actually, no, politics and ideas are what leads economies and what provides the grounds for an, you know, an economic system. So in this case, he was saying that the end of history was the triumph of, liberal, of liberalism, and that meant a triumph for capitalism. But one of the interesting things there is that he didn't necessarily say that it was a triumph on its own, you know, on its own merits. He said that it was because it was the last sort of viable option for the world because Soviet communism or more specifically Marxist-Leninism as it was practiced in the USSR had demonstrated itself as no way to govern the world. That's my little theoretical digression. Emma, tell me, do you think we saw the end of history in 1989 and through the 1990s? Well, look, I think for for a moment in time, it, it looked like Fukuyama was right. So Fukuyama seemed to be kind of confirming what Ronald Reagan had said. What I'm describing now is a plan and a hope for the long term. The march of freedom and democracy, which will leave Marxism, Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies, which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. So, so Fukuyama's idea seems to be confirming exactly what Reagan says, and then events seem to be backing this up. So as you mentioned, there's kind of revolutions across Eastern Europe where countries are, by choice, moving away from Soviet communism, which is kind of collapsing in on itself. So so Fukuyama's argument comes at a very, I guess, convenient time, and his predictions are seeming to come true. So it has an awful lot of currency. And he, I think, in, in many ways was kind of right about the 1990s being I guess I guess what H.W. Bush called a new world order. So so things are kind of reshaping very quickly and very dramatically, and it does seem that we're kind of entering a new phase of technocratic 
politics where the great moral questions of our time have been answered and answered emphatically and now what we're going about is the technical solving of problems and we do see that in the 1990s with the rise of kind of centrist administrations in the United States in the United Kingdom and a kind of uh, I guess a lack of ideological diversity across the West. So certainly his idea had currency, but but as to you know whether he was right, like imagine being so bold as to as to proclaim the end of history. No, I think you're right. It's kind of a convenient thesis for, especially for the right, but as it turned out, also for the centre left and for progressives who. As we go through this series, we're going to look at them in some detail. So we're going to look at the Clinton administration and Tony Blair and New Labour in the United Kingdom. It set out a blueprint for nothing much to happen. To skip forward 30 years, I think it's interesting because we certainly all, we're all feeling like we're living through history once again. And I know there absolutely have been some moments um, over the last 20 years when we've felt like we're living in history in defiance of Fukuyama's predictions. September 11th and the Iraq war are one example. The financial crisis of 2008-2009 is another. So what, to bring it back, I don't think Fukuyama was right, but I think that he set out a really, well, not necessarily an interesting, but certainly an influential blueprint for how politics would look like through the 1990s. So what Emma and I are going to do through this series is kind of look at the 90s through the prism of that confidence and even that complacency, but also to try to dig underneath to see how history actually carried on. Because I don't think that you can look at the 1990s from 2020 and say that nothing happened, because if nothing happened, then I reckon we'd all be, we'd, we wouldn't all be stuck at home <laughs> waiting out a global pandemic. What do you think, Em? I think you're absolutely right. And, and what we're trying to do, I guess the kind of overarching idea of this series is that the way that the world was constructed with that kind of triumphalism, that idea that we'd had, we'd reached the kind of best way of organizing society in liberal democracy is what has kind of led us to this point. Um, and in order to go back and understand that, we're starting as we have today in 1989. But in our next instalment, in in this first episode of season two, we're going to be looking specifically at the end of co- the Cold War and how the world kind of emerged from the end of that conflict. That's right. So we'll be looking at this problem of the 1990s from quite a different perspective through the lens of the Cold War. So we hope that you'll join us for our next episode, which will take us from Stalin to Bernie Sanders and from Brezhnev to Comrade Brittany. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. And our thanks in particular this week go out to Pete, Sarah, Amelia and Grace, who've been working on very tight timelines in makeshift offices working from home. So thank you to all of you. And that new music that you can hear, the theme for Barely Getting By, was written and produced by my good friend, Stuart Cullen. You can follow Stu and his music by going to his website, which is Stuart Cullen. That's S-T-U-A-R-T. C-U-L-L-E-N dot net. You can also find some more music on our daggy 1990s Spotify playlist, which is linked in the show notes. And you can follow both Chloe and myself on Twitter. Chloe is at Dr. Claude and I'm Emma Shortis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>